If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 8. Our scripture reading for this morning is Leviticus chapters 8 and 9. As, uh, as you may know, we've been uh, studying Leviticus for a number of weeks now, and uh, we're just working through it one section at a time. We come to Leviticus 8 this morning. Uh, let me say, if you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be some Bibles out on the table uh, just outside the door. Uh, and uh, I think it was two weeks ago when I was preaching, I was sitting right there during the song before the sermon, and uh, suddenly I looked around and realized, I don't have my Bible and I didn't want to admit that because I'm a pastor and I'm supposed to bring my Bible to church. So I like quick and snuck to the back and grabbed one of the Bibles from the table and, and used it. So you can feel free to do that right now without any guilt or shame. <laughs> Bibles are in the back. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, uh, you should feel free to take one of those, keep it, write your name in the front, bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. It's yours uh, to, to keep and use. Well, before we read Leviticus 8 and 9, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for uh, your love and for your grace and for uh, your mercy in your Son, Jesus. We thank you uh, for Jesus, our great high priest, who offered up himself for our sin. And we pray that as we read Leviticus, we would really be reading about Jesus and we would be understanding better his work for us in, in bringing us to yourself. Uh, Bless our time together. Open our hearts, our minds. Uh, give me the right words to say. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Leviticus chapter 8. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. <coughs> and Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water, and he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with a band. And he placed the breastpiece on him, and in the breastpiece he put the Urim and Thummim. And he set the turban on his head, and on the turban in front he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils in the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waists and bound caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he brought the bull of the sin offering and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering and he killed it. And Moses took the bull and with his finger put it, it uh, took the blood and with his finger put it on the horns of the altar around it. And purified the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. And he took all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat and Moses burned them on the altar. But the bull and its skin and its flesh and its dung he burned up with fire outside the camp as the Lord commanded Moses. 
Then he presented the ram of the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar, and he cut the ram into pieces, and Moses burned the head with the pieces and the fat. He washed the entrails and the legs with water, and Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering for the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it. And Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. Then he presented Aaron's sons, and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. Then he took the fat and the fat tail and all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat and the right thigh. And out of the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened loaf and one loaf of bread with oil and one wafer and placed them on the pieces of fat and on the right thigh. And he put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons and waved them as a wave offering before the Lord. Then Moses took them from their hands and burned them on the altar with the burnt offering. This was an ordination offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. And Moses took the breast and waved it for a wave offering before the Lord. It was Moses' portion of the, ram of, of the ram of ordination, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and of the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments, and also on his sons and his sons' garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons and his sons' garments with him. And Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Boil the flesh at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and there eat it, and the bread that is in the basket of the ordination offerings, as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it. And what remains of the flesh and the bread you shall burn up with fire. And you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed, for it will take seven days to ordain you. As has been done today, the Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged, so that you do not die, for so I have been commanded. And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, Take a male goat for a sin offering, and a calf and a lamb, both a year old, without blemish, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings, to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. And Moses said to Aaron, Draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering. And make atonement for yourself and for the people. And bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord commanded. So Aaron drew near to the altar, killed the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. And the sons of Aaron presented the blood to him, and he dipped his finger in the blood and put it on the horns of the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar. But the fat and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver from the sin offering he burned on the altar as the Lord commanded Moses. The flesh and the skin he burned up with fire outside the camp. Then he killed the burnt offering, and Aaron's sons handed him the blood, and he threw it against the sides of the altar. And they handed the burnt offering to him piece by piece, and the head, and he burned them on the altar. And he washed the entrails and the legs and burned them with the burnt offering on the altar. 
Then he presented the people's offering and took the goat of the sin offering that was for the people and killed it and offered it as a sin offering like the first one. And he presented the burnt offering and offered it according to the rule. And he presented the grain offering, took a handful of it and burned it on the altar besides the burnt offering of the morning. Then he killed the ox and the ram, the sacrifice of peace offerings for the people. And Aaron's son handed him the blood and he threw it against the sides of the altar. But the fat pieces of the ox and the ram, the fat tail, and that which covers the entrails and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver, they put the fat pieces on the breasts, and he burned that that fat pieces on the altar. But the breasts and the right thigh Aaron waved for a wave offering before the Lord as Moses commanded. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting And when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. I wonder if you sense your need for the Father's presence. You know, the book of Leviticus is built on uh, really a, a number of, of presuppositions, right? Things are presupposed, aren't stated by the book, but just assumed. And presupposition number one is that we, we need the presence of God in our life. And I wonder if, if you feel that. Uh, do you believe that, that you sitting there in your seat or, or you uh, going to work on Monday morning need the presence of God in your life? Of course, uh, that requires that you, for you to believe that, you have to first believe in God. And uh, so even if you don't believe in God, I want you to suppose with me for a moment that there is a God. Why, why would you need him? Why would you need his presence? Well, to sort of summarize really briefly, the short Christian answer to that is that God is the source of of life and love and happiness and peace and strength and meaning. Any good that you have in life is really a gift from him. As uh, St. Augustine famously said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. You see, God created the world in order to communicate his goodness to us, to shower his good gifts upon us, his children. Apart from God, you know, we find ourselves constantly trying to, to, to be loved, to be accepted, to create meaning in life, to find some source of power and strength, to, something to trust in, something to rely on. You see, God is necessary, Christianity teaches, in order to have real life, real happiness, real purpose and meaning and strength and endurance and peace and rest. We, ha- we may have shadows of those things apart from God, but not the reality. Now, I know that's a big presupposition, but uh, that is presupposed by the book of Leviticus. And so the book of Leviticus doesn't make any sense if you don't first understand that background. But there's actually uh, another presupposition. Presupposition number one is we need the presence of God. And presupposition number two is we don't have it. You know, some people teach that everybody has kind of a piece of the divine in them. We just need to find it and bring it out. Um, 
Other people teach sort of an equal opportunity religion, right? Regardless of what your religious viewpoint is, it doesn't really matter. Everybody has equal access to God. But the, the Bible actually teaches that because of human sin, which brought guilt and uncleanness, we are separated from God. So uh, there's a, a verse in Isaiah, Isaiah 59, verse 2, which says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Or Proverbs uh, 15, 29 says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. And notice in both of those verses, there's something which separates us from God. Human sin, human iniquity, human wickedness, right, separates us from God. There's a barrier. And, you know, in the beginning, God created humanity to be a a blessing to the earth. Uh, Humanity was created to fill the earth, to cultivate the earth, to maintain justice on the earth. Human beings were to use their creativity, their wisdom, their their very presence as as being made in the image of God to represent the Father in the world, to make creation more fruitful, more life-giving than it would have been otherwise. But human beings, rather than obeying God in that calling, they rebelled. We rebelled. And this barrier, right from the start, was pictured when God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden after their rebellion. It was a little like, you know, kicking your rebellious teenager out of the house, right? I'm sorry, I love you, but tough love, you've got to go. And yet it was more than tough love because by human sin, right, we we have dishonored God. Um, We've insulted him, offended him. And I know those are, those are, that's strong language, scary language, but it's true. Psalm, uh, the Psalms are, are, state this in a really uh, stark way. Psalm 5, verse 5 says that God hates those who stir up trouble. That's a scary verse, right? Psalm 11, verse 5 says God hates those who love violence. See, God desires justice and goodness and fruitfulness. And he hates it when we corrupt his pure world, when we bring evil where there was goodness, when we create barrenness instead of fruit. And some people think, and you might think, uh, well, that, that just doesn't seem fair, right? I mean, that's not fair, God. He should accept me for who I am. Or, or that's not kind of God, right? He should forgive me because that's what God does, after all. He forgives. Or, or you might think, well, okay, I know I've screwed up, but I can make this right, uh, I may have made a mess, but I can fix this, right? If I just start doing good or if I, you know, get a little religion to pacify God, I can sort of get back into the inner circle. And the problem with all of those responses is that they don't really do justice to the offense of sin. You know, if someone comes into your house and murders your family and burns your home to the ground, you have a right to be offended and angry. We have brought destruction to the Father's world. And the offense of sin is real in, in human relationships, and the offense of sin is real in our relationship to our Father as well. The truth is that uh, we actually feel deeply the reality of this broken relationship, this broken fellowship. Our alienation of God is, is tangible. It's actually real and felt. I mean, we feel it in our loneliness. Think about it. If we were walking with God, if, if we knew the intimacy of His presence, we, we wouldn't feel lonely. But we feel lonely. We feel it in our powerlessness, our helplessness. We feel it in our aimlessness. 
We feel this alienation in our restlessness and in our guilt and in our shame. In fact, before Adam and Eve were ever sent out of God's presence, they hid from it. See, because of their shame, their sense of their own brokenness, they didn't want to be in God's presence. They were too ashamed. They were too self-conscious to stand before their father. Now, I realize I haven't even gotten to the text yet, and we're going to talk about two chapters, but don't worry. Um, We're just talking presuppositions right now. We're kind of setting it up. Two things. One, we, we need the presence of God for life, for happiness, for peace, for strength. And two, we don't have it. Our sin has separated us from our Father, and this separation began in the garden from the very beginning. And so we live in a place where we feel distant from God. Uh, We wonder if God is even there. Uh, Yet our guilt and shame make us feel that, well, if he is there, he probably doesn't want to have anything to do with me anyway. So we limp along in, in our guilt, in our depression, in our restlessness, sort of wishing that there was a God who could make things right, and and wishing there was a God whom we could uh, be near, but feeling that if he's out there, he's distant. Believe it or not, the tabernacle and the book of Leviticus, of all books, uh, was actually God's provisional answer to this problem. And the priest was a central part of the tabernacle. So here's what we're going to see as we look at these two chapters, chapters 8 and 9 this morning. We're going to see that God sets up Aaron uh, as a high priest so that he could be a a mediator, right? So that he could represent man to God, he could represent God to man, he could sort of be the go-between, right? And Aaron was to intercede, to step in on Israel's behalf with God, and he was to secure the blessing of the presence of the Father for the Israelites, Aaron was to to intercede, to step in on Israel's behalf, and to secure the blessing of the presence of the Father. But Aaron's role, right, points us forward to Jesus. I mean, Jesus is our great high priest. God sets Jesus up as our high priest to intercede on our behalf and to secure the blessing of the Father's presence for us. And, of course, Jesus then takes us the church into his priesthood so that we are made priests, the New Testament tells us, who are called to intercede, to step in on behalf of others and represent the Father's gracious presence in the world. So Aaron interceded and blessed. Jesus intercedes and blesses, and and we are called to do the same. Um, we're, We're going to think about Aaron's role then, Jesus' role, and our role as we go through the text. And we're going to do that under three points. You can see an outline on the back of your bulletin. Uh, the three points uh, we're going to look at are, are dressed for the Father's presence, standing in the Father's presence, and blessing with the Father's presence. So first, dressed for the Father's presence. Uh, you, may remember, <clears throat> you may remember when Adam and Eve first sinned, um, that immediately they realized they were naked and they felt shame. And you may wonder, how did they not notice they were naked before? But really, apart from sin, we have no fear of exposure. Nakedness was not noteworthy until sin came into the world. And and yet, at the same time, they, they actually had become more naked. 
They had become more naked because they lost the covering of the glory of righteousness. You see, Adam and Eve were made upright. They were made good in God's sight. And they could stand in God's presence in their own righteousness. It was beautiful in God's sight when he looked upon them and saw the the righteousness with which they were made. But sin makes us ugly. And we feel ashamed. And we want to hide. And we want to cover Humanity, because of the offense of our guilt, we cannot stand in God's presence. And because of our shame, we don't want to. So Aaron is the guy here who is going to become the high priest. He's the one who's going to come into God's presence on behalf of everybody else. And yet Aaron is the biggest sinner in the lot. You may remember a little incident with a golden calf. Uh, Aaron, the brother of Moses, right, creates an idol and causes all Israel to worship it, the whole nation. While Moses is actually up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments at that very moment, one of which being don't make idols. And, uh, and do you remember what Aaron says when Moses comes down the mountain and he confronts Aaron? Aaron says, well, I, I took their gold and I threw it into the fire and out popped this calf. Really, Aaron? That's all you could come up with, right? What's Aaron doing? He's hiding his shame under a veil of lies. He's hiding, just like Adam and Eve did. And this is the guy that God chooses to become his representative to Israel. This is the guy God chooses to bless Israel with God's presence. But first... God must make Aaron into a new creation. God created Adam to bless the world, and he failed. God is ordaining Aaron to bless the nation, but he's already failed. So Aaron must be born again, as it were. He must become a new creation, a new creature. And that's what happens in chapter 8. Actually, let me me show you. We're actually going to start at the end of the chapter. Chapter 8, look at verse 33. Verse 33, you know, Moses has been uh, giving instructions and, and ordaining Aaron and his sons to the priesthood. And Moses says in verse 33, You shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed, for it will take seven days to ordain you. Why seven? That seems like a significant number in the Bible, maybe. Seven, seven days. Um, Why seven? Why seven days? Because through this ordination process, Aaron is being set apart as a kind of new creation. Uh, In seven days, God created the world, culminating in the creation of humanity on the sixth day and then the seventh day of rest. In seven days, God is creating a new humanity, so to speak, the priesthood with Aaron at its head, a new humanity to bless the nations with God's presence. What happens in those seven days? Well, verse 6 of chapter 8, Aaron is washed clean. Verses 7 through 9, Aaron is clothed. We'll come back to that. Verses 10 through 12, Aaron and the tabernacle are anointed with oil. Verses 14 through 17, the altar is purified from Aaron's sins. Aaron hasn't even gotten to it yet, and his sins have already made the altar impure. So uh, uh, God, uh, Moses, uh, purifies the altar through the, the sin offering. Uh, Verses 18 through 21, Moses offers up a burnt offering on Aaron's behalf. 
uh, the burnt offering, which shows that, that Aaron is, is truly committed to this work. He's offering him whole, his whole self symbolically to the Father by offering up this uh, animal. And then verses 22 to 29 is what is known as the ordination offering. And uh, here it's not just items in the temple, uh, but Aaron himself who is cleansed by blood. Uh, Moses puts blood on Aaron's right earlobe and his right thumb and his right big toe. This kind of seems odd to us, but he's, he's, he's sort of three points, three far points on the body that kind of represent the whole. And uh, then verse 30, verse 30 it almost seems like just for good measure, there's a little more oil and blood sprinkled on Aaron and his garments. What's going on here? Right? Why all this um, ceremony? Of course, the washing symbolizes the removal of uncleanness, as it often does in Leviticus. Uh, blood in Leviticus always signifies atonement, according to chapter 17, verse 11. And so Aaron's sins are dealt with through the, the life of a substitute, which dies in the place of Aaron. So his sins are taken away. Uh, the blood applied signifies purifying Aaron from his sin and shame. Right? God is taking away the sin and shame of Aaron so that he can stand in his presence. Uh, the anointing oil uh, signifies being set apart for some particular work and probably symbolizes the presence of the Spirit for that work. But then you have the clothes. A coat, a sash, a robe, an ephod. Anybody bought one of those at the store recently, right? Uh, it's, it's probably, it's a kind of shirt or even apron type thing. And uh, a breast piece studded with precious gems. A turban with a golden plate on the front called a, a, a holy crown. Why such lavish, extravagant, uh, why such a lavish, extravagant uniform? Exodus actually tells us Outright, Exodus 28, God says to Moses, You shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. So God's clothing Aaron with glory and beauty. Sin had stripped Adam of the glory of his righteousness and made him ugly and unfit for God's presence, spiritually speaking. And God is now clothing Aaron with beauty and glory to fit him for the presence of the Father. God is fitting Aaron for the presence of the Father by clothing him with glory and beauty. Now it's interesting when we get to the New Testament because Jesus, when he came, he did, he did the exact opposite, didn't he? He was already glorious in heaven with his Father and he clothes himself in humanity he uh, is symbolically cleansed in his baptism. You may remember Jesus submitted to baptism, though he had no sin. The scriptures say he became sin for us. And Isaiah tells us that Jesus' form had no majesty and no beauty. Right? So Aaron is being clothed in beauty and glory and majesty. And Jesus comes into the world. He takes on human flesh. And, and his form had no majesty and no beauty. In fact, on the cross, Isaiah says that Jesus' appearance was so marred was marred beyond human semblance. Which means he, he, on the cross, he had been so beaten, so brutalized, and was so ugly, he, he didn't even look like a man. Beyond human semblance. And yet Jesus is still glorious. He's still glorious because though he died naked on a tree, he was clothed in the righteous, his righteousness to the end. 
And that glory was then revealed in his resurrection. See, when Jesus' body was renewed and made strong and powerful and beautiful once more, Aaron's priestly robes actually give us a little glimpse, a little picture of the glory of the resurrection of our high priest who would be clothed in glory in his resurrection. And the scriptures teach us that, that when we trust in Jesus and you know, when we're symbolically cleansed with the waters of baptism, we are purified by Jesus' blood. We are anointed with Jesus' spirit. We are clothed in his glory, his righteousness. So everything that happened to Aaron in symbols happens to us in reality, right? We are purified not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with the blood of Jesus. We are anointed not with oil, but with the spirit. We are clothed not with garments that, that you know, somebody made, but we are clothed with the glory and the righteousness of Jesus, So when we believe in Jesus, we are dressed in the beautiful righteousness of Christ. Aaron was dressed for the Father's presence. Jesus, of course, was always in the Father's presence, but he clothed himself in humanity that he might clothe us in his glory. Now, how must Aaron have looked to the Israelites? He's got this uniform. It's given for beauty and for glory. God designed it, by the way, and says it's for beauty and for glory. So it must have looked pretty good. And he literally had gems, right, on his breast. He had a golden crown on his head that says, Holy to the Lord. When the high priest donned his uniform, they must have been in awe at the beauty and the glory that God bestows on men. Do you realize that through faith in Jesus, you are more glorious to the Father than that? When the Father looks on you, He says, Look, look at the beauty of my Son. Look at the glory of my Son. Look, look, there it is, and there it is again. The beauty of my Son, the glory of my Son. The whole world is being filled with the beauty and glory of my Son as people come to faith in Jesus and are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And of course, that's been God's plan from the beginning. I mean, you may remember God created Adam and Eve after His image. And he told them to go fill the earth with the image of God. That's the first command. Go fill the earth with images. Right? Just a certain kind of image. God said, fill the earth with people made in the image of the Father. And we are now a new creation in Christ, being remade by the Spirit after the image of Jesus. You know, maybe the one difference here is that God doesn't first remake us and then draw us close. You know, God clothed Aaron and then he could enter in. But he draws us close, close, treating us as glorious. And by being close to the Father, we become more like him. As we gaze on the Son, Jesus, we are conformed to his image. So Aaron's all dressed up in his priestly robes. Jesus is, of course, clothed in his resurrection glory. We are clothed with the glory of Jesus by faith. And all dressed up, now what? Well, you know, I mean, almost without fail. If you're going to get all dressed up, you're probably going to meet somebody. And so uh, Aaron was dressed for the Father's presence, and now we're going to talk about Aaron standing in the Father's presence. Everything that happens in chapter 8, as you read through chapter 8, everything that happens there is done by Moses to Aaron. But once Aaron has been cleansed 
and clothed and anointed and purified, right? Now Aaron himself can stand in the Father's presence. And so in chapter 9, Aaron begins his work. And chapter 9, verse 1, begins on the eighth day. And I think, you know, just really briefly about the significance of that. God created the world in seven days, you know, six of work, one of rest. And on the eighth day, humanity was to begin their work of blessing the creation. Jesus came, he lived, he died, he was buried. Then on the eighth day, the day after the Sabbath, right, seven plus one, First day of a new week, Jesus rose from the dead and brought a new creation to restore blessing to the world, right? So Aaron now begins his work on the eighth day. And his work is it's straightforward enough. He offers uh, a burnt offering, a sin offering, and peace offerings, both for himself and for the people. So he's bringing offerings to God. He's interceding on behalf of the people. Uh, the burnt offering, you may remember, symbolic of our wholehearted obedience to the Father, giving ourselves wholly over to him wholly committing ourselves to our Father. Sin offering is about the purification of the the tabernacle from the impurity caused by the people's sins. And the peace offering is about the fullness of uh, the blessing of our restored fellowship with the Father because in the peace offering, the people got to eat and drink at the Father's table, right? So it's about the intimacy of eating and drinking at the Father's table, communing with the Father. So the burnt offering, the sin offering, the peace offering, really, is there any clearer picture of the work of Jesus? Jesus offered himself wholly to the Father in obeying the whole of God's law, God's will for him. Sometimes we call that the active obedience of Jesus. He fully fulfilled the whole law of the Father. Uh, Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for sin. He interceded for us by offering his own blood to purify us as the true and living temple that we might be a fit Place for the dwelling of the Father. Uh, sometimes we call that the passive obedience of Jesus because Jesus submitted to the law's penalty and suffered in our place. And so we have here Jesus' active and passive obedience, right? Symbolized in the work of Aaron on behalf of the people, just as Jesus' work was done on our behalf. And so that was all so that uh, the Israelites might enjoy the peace offering, so that we might enjoy intimate fellowship with our Father as well through Jesus. So Aaron intercedes on behalf of Israel through the sacrifice. Jesus interceded on behalf, our behalf through the sacrifice. Once Aaron has done his work, he enters into the tent of meeting. And probably here meaning the most holy place where God would meet with Aaron, where Aaron would stand in the Father's presence. So he enters into the tent of meeting. Just as once Jesus finished his sacrificial work, he ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father. And there Jesus continues to intercede to pray for us at the Father's right hand, in the Father's presence. And, and, and just think, just pause there for a minute. Do you realize that right now Jesus is at the Father's right hand praying for you? Je- that's what Jesus is doing. The Bible tells us at the Father's hand, right hand, he's interceding on our behalf. Just as Aaron goes into the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, to meet with the Father on behalf of Israel, Jesus went into the heavenly places to intercede with the Father on our behalf, to pray for us. Which means if nobody else is praying for you, right? You say, all my friends, they're, they're such, so bad at prayer. I ask them to pray, they always forget. Okay, Jesus is praying for you right now at the Father's right hand. And you know what? He knows better what you need. He's praying for you. And yet there's more than that. You know, in, in Israel, only Aaron was allowed to go into the most holy place. He went in on behalf of Israel. Everybody else had to stand outside and just watch. 
But the Bible says, as mysterious as it is, that when Jesus ascended into heaven, when he went into the Father's presence, he didn't simply do that for us. He actually brings us into the Father's presence with him. Now, there was something like that in Israel as well, because Aaron uh, was wearing, remember that breastplate with all those gems on it? On those gems were the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. So when Aaron goes into the holy place, he's bringing Israel with him. They were actually, they were also on the stones on his shoulders. So twice over, right? He's bringing Israel with him. When Jesus goes into the Father's presence, he actually brings us with him. There's, let me point to one place in the New Testament that says this, uh, though there are plenty. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 uh, talks about us being born again. Uh, and, and then it says... In Ephesians 2, it says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So he raised us up. It already said we were born again, so that's not what it's talking about there. He raised us up into the heavenly places and seated us with Jesus in the heavenly places. Which means when you become a Christian, when you believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, uh, you're, you're united to Jesus, right? Jesus is in you, you are in Jesus, which means in a spiritual and real way, where Jesus goes, you go. And Christ has brought us into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of the Father. Now the New Testament says that we... In light of all of Jesus' work, we now are a kingdom of priests. Jesus is the high priest, right? But we are each priests before God, every one of us. What do priests do? What do priests do? That's what we've been looking at, right? Aaron interceded on behalf of Israel. He prayed for them, interceded for them. He offered sacrifices for his own sins and the sins of the people. And then he went directly into the Father's presence to meet with him. Jesus interceded for us. He offered himself as a sacrifice for sin. And then he went into the Father's presence in heaven. Our great calling and privilege as God's people is to enter into the Father's presence through Jesus. And pray. And intercede. Laying the needs of ourselves and others before our Father. And when you think about it this way, consider how radical even prayer is. Think about those verses we read earlier in Isaiah and, and Proverbs, right? Isaiah says, because of our sin, God has hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Right? Isaiah says, sin stops God from hearing you. Proverbs 15, 29 says, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. And we think, oh no, I'm not righteous. I'm not. Because of sin, God blocks his ear. Does God not hear me? Can I pray? Are my prayers bouncing off the ceiling? But what does the writer of Hebrews says? He says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And since we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. And actually the, the word confidence means frankness. It, it means speaking freely there. So the writer is saying, draw near to God, speaking freely. Because of the work of Jesus, we can come to the Father's throne of grace and speak freely. And we can have confidence that he will hear. You know, when you pray, do you sometimes wonder, well, you know, it, does God hear me? Is it sometimes difficult to believe that your prayers don't just bounce off the ceiling and fall back to the ground? 
you know, if we pray by sight, so to speak, or, or, or uh, what seems to make uh, sense to us, we would give up pretty quickly. Because who would believe that the God of the universe would listen to me? Me in my sin, me in my guilt, me in my shame. Which is why we pray in faith that Jesus Christ, our great high priest, by his obedience and blood, has secured our right to enter into the heavenly throne room and babble our hearts out before our Father. Prayer is a a right that we have been given because of Jesus to come into our Father's presence, to lay our hearts out before him. And prayer is also, it's a calling. Uh, You know, we've been made into a kingdom of priests in Jesus, and priests intercede on behalf of others. Aaron came before the Father uh, in a way that the common Israelite could not, right? They had to stay outside, just watch. But Aaron comes right into the tent of meeting. Well, as Christians, we are all priests, right? Every one of us. Uh, There's no distinction between me and you, between clergy and laity, right? That's, uh, we are priests, every one of us before our God. And yet there are still people, right, for whom we can intercede. We can intercede for one another, that's true. But there are people who themselves, in one sense, cannot come before the Father. They haven't been purified or anointed and clothed. We We can pray for the lost and dying world. We can pray as Jesus did on the cross when he is fulfilling his priestly work, when he says, Father, forgive them. Right? Father, show mercy. Father, bring them to Jesus. And think right now about, about people you may know, people around you at work or at home or at school, friends or family, whoever it is, who, who, who need the Father's presence and don't have it, who don't know Jesus, who, who maybe, maybe even are antagonistic to Christianity. Think about people who need his mercy and grace, who need to know forgiveness, who need themselves the same kind of grace that the Father has shown to you. Pray for them. Write their names down. Pray for them. Remember them. Lift them up before the Father. And yet, don't just pray for them. Right? Uh, we, we've talked about being dressed in the Father's presence. We've talked about standing in the Father's presence. And finally, we're going to talk about blessing with the Father's presence. Um, Notice in chapter 9 the purpose of Aaron's work. It's actually directly stated three times. It's in uh, verse 4. It says, for today the Lord will appear to you. In verse 6, it says, this is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. And then in verse 23, the fulfillment, uh, we're told that the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. What is the goal of Aaron's work? Right? We're told three times. The goal of Aaron's work, it's that God's glory would be present with God's people. Aaron interceded on behalf of the people through the sacrifices so that God would dwell in their midst, so that God would live as their neighbor right there in the midst of Israel. And then, Moses, and then Aaron lifts up his hands, he, he, he performs his sacrifices, he lifts up his hands and he blesses the people. And then he goes into the tent of meeting and then he comes out again and he blesses the people some more. And it doesn't say it here, but the the blessing that Aaron would have used is found in Numbers 6. It's called the Aaronic blessing because Aaron uses it. And uh, it's the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And notice that blessing is all about the Lord turning his face toward you 
in love and in grace and in peace. It's all about God uh, turning his smiling face of acceptance and approbation toward his people. That's what Aaron is praying for. That, that is what he is asking for. And the result of Aaron's blessing is that fire comes out from before the Lord, whether that's from heaven or from uh, the um, Ark of the Covenant, I don't know, but it comes out from before the Lord and consumes the burnt offering on the altar. And the people see it and they shout for joy and they fall on their faces. Well, what's the point of this light show? God is showing that he accepts their offering, which is God showing that he accepts them. He accepts them. He loves them. He approves of them. He delights in their offering themselves to him. See, Aaron, through his intercessory work, brings the gracious presence of the Father near, which causes the people to shout for joy. Now, remember, Aaron was a big sinner, right? Golden calf, big. And uh, Hebrews tells us that this means that he could deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself was beset with weakness. Aaron was able to administer God's grace through the sacrificial system because he knew how big of a sinner he was. And he knew God's grace for him. Because God had shown him grace, he was now able to represent the Father's grace to the nation. And Paul says something similar in 2 Corinthians. He says, God had shown him comfort in trouble, so he was now able to show the same comfort to others. Well, God has shown us his grace, hasn't he, in Jesus. He has taken away our sin. He has removed our shame. He has reconciled us to himself. He has given us the hope of heaven. He has poured out his Holy Spirit, right? God has shown us his grace. So we should be able to represent that grace to others. Why is it then that though we blow it a million times, we still expect other people to get it right the first time? Right? I mean, you know how that is, probably. You know, why is it that, that we think our kids should do everything perfect the first time without being asked? If you're a parent, you know your kids do something and you get annoyed at them. Why are you annoyed at them? Why do we get frustrated with our coworkers who do things that we, we wish they wouldn't do and now we have to fix a problem or now we have to talk to them about it or now we have to... Why do we have short fuses with other drivers on the road? Aaron could deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself was beset with weakness. We forget how weak we are. We have forgotten how patient the Father has been with us. You represent the Father's gracious presence in the world. You're his priest. You, you represent his gracious presence in the world. It doesn't matter how often you've screwed up. It doesn't matter how many golden calves you've made, right? But in order to administer the blessing of the Father's grace, in order to show that grace to others, we need to remember the Father's grace to us first. The Father has clothed you in the glory of Jesus in his sight. He's equipped you for ministry by the Spirit. He's invited you into his presence that you might be close to him. And he now calls us to represent the Father's gracious presence to those around us. And I know we fail at this again and again and again. And the irony is, though, it's only through failing that we will ever be able to succeed. Because it's only as we fail and need God's grace and receive God's grace that we will be able to show that same grace to others. 
So I, I give you permission to go fail this week. Right? Go, go screw up. Okay, I'm not really telling you to go sin. Don't walk away hearing that. But, but I know you're going to, right? And when you do, come to the Father's throne of grace, receive mercy and grace to help through Jesus, and then go show that same grace to those around you. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we pray that as we screw up this week, as we fail, as we sin, as we rebel, as we are selfish, as we are rude or mean or whatever it is, Father, we pray that we would quickly turn to you, that we would draw near to your throne of grace, that we would receive mercy, and that that mercy would so get hold of our hearts that we would show that mercy to those around us, that we would be patient and kind and loving and gracious, that you would be honored and glorified in that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.